when you consider what Reformed theology does, it just makes a mishmash out of Scripture. It applies everything, and the things which don't apply, which don't make sense when taken literally, well, then you have to, what they call, spiritualize it, which we call allegorize it. And I can't imagine, but I, I, I always think of it in this term. Just imagine if you bought this novel in the bookstore. It was marked down, and you never heard it. You say, hey, this sounds interesting. It's about a lady that's a spy in Russia during the Cold War. So it sounds good. So you open it up, and you start to read it, and it says her name was Angie so-and-so. And you say, no, wait a minute. Her name isn't Angie. Her name is George. And it's really not a lady. It's a man. Now, would you do that to a book? But that's what, that's what Reformed theology does to the Bible. They will say that, well, it says Israel, but it really means the church. How can it do? Do words mean anything? If we can do that with some things, where do you stop? And pretty much when you get all done with it, if you follow Reformed theology, you've made the Bible a mishmash. You might as well throw it out and just get up there and tell them what you want to do. Tell them what you think. Read from the Reader's Digest. It'd be about as valuable. Uh, Well, I'm not going to get started on that. I promise I won't because that's a... Uh, you can have a real, <laughs> you can make it into a hobby horse, and we don't want to do that. So we come now to our message, and uh, as we speak this week, we're kind of building on what we did several weeks ago when we spoke, but not entirely. We've entitled this the key to the book of Revelation, and this uh, was going to serve kind of as a sort of an introduction to the book. It's part of what would be part of a formal introduction, and I think this one truth alone will help open the door to the book of Revelation. Now, nobody would ever dispute the fact that the book of Revelation is regarded as being the most difficult book in the Bible to study for a believer today. And it is unless you start taking some things into consideration. First of all, that you start being literal. And second of all, you recognize what is the key to the book of Revelation. And I believe this is the key. And we'll see as we go on. So we start by saying, from, and uh, by the way, for those who, you, uh, who are joining us online, these notes are available. If you go to our documents on our website and, and check my name, Don Hewitt, you open it up, you'll find this sermon, you'll find these notes that I have today and that I've given to our folks here, the key to the book of Revelation, and you're more than welcome to print them out and to, uh, to use them. So we, we start off, and, and looking at my introduction, from time to time we find that something we take for granted is the key to something important. Air is something we probably rarely think about, and yet consider how crucial it can be to many things. Now, not just our physical lives, because I have asthma, I know about that, but consider your car or your truck for just a moment. If the air filter is dirty, the vehicle can develop pure fu- poor fuel economy, something that isn't too desirable with gas well over three bucks a gallon, or the car may misfire and start billowing black smoke from the exhaust. And that can be embarrassing. I don't know about you, but if your car starts smoking, it just makes you feel bad about it. And probably worst of all, Old Faithful can suffer a decrease in engine power and acceleration. But before you start shopping for a new car or a new truck, maybe the problem is little more than a dirty air filter. A lack of air could, a lack of air could cause someone to take out a six-year car loan. And I guess sometimes now you can get more than six years. That's just... Hard to believe. Six, six years, by the time you get the car paid for, it's about the time to get another one, I think, if you drive it like most people do. And so, and there's one more important thing air does for cars and trucks. Underinflated tires can re- result in a loss of fuel economy. 
And that's not a good idea, again, at that $3 plus a gallon that gas is. And uh, I seem to have acquired a, a friend up here. And um, it, under, <laughs> it, can, under, it can cause you to, pardon me, I've got this little granddaughter going around up here. Okay, come here, you. Okay, here we go. Okay, at least you won't run around so much. So under, so it can underinflated tires can increase the tread wear of your car and can and can shorten the life of those expensive things. And if you bought tires in the last year or two, you know how expensive they can be. You can go broke buying tires, and that's just an underinflation can shorten the life of those things. And uh, you know you can even I read where you can lose like as much as a mile per gallon on your on your fuel economy because of underinflated tires. And if you think about that, if you drive a car 18,000 miles a year, just imagine how much you're going to lose on uh, your mileage. I had to pass her off to another. Really, I don't mind the, my granddaughter doing that too much, but not normal. Now, so the other thing it can do is, uh, you know, even if you don't drive in, in a Daytona 500, most of us don't like it if our car doesn't handle well. If it starts to get sluggish and it's how it handles, how it corners, that's not a lot of fun. And underinflated tires can do that. And so here we have something that we just don't think about. Uh, I just bought an air filter, and it hasn't done me any good yet because it's still sitting at home in the box. So it'll probably work even better if I put it in the car. But just something that simple, you know. So it, it goes to show something that we just we kind of just take it for granted. Who thinks about car, air filters? Now, I'm not an auto mechanic, and, and this is not a message about improving your car's performance. But the point we're making with these illustrations is to emphasize that something we take for granted in Scripture can be far more important to other biblical truth than we realize. And one such doctrine is the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Now, for the benefit of any that are not 100% clear on what we mean by that, we believe, and Scripture clearly sets forth, that the church today, the true body of believers, the body of Christ, will be taken, will be raptured, will be caught up and taken away before the great tribulation, before the tribulation, even before the man of, the man of lawlessness, the beast, the one world ruler who will bring peace to the Middle East, before he even comes on the scene, we're gone. That's what, this, the, great, that's what the pre-tribulation rapture of the church stands for. Now, this doctrine is quite simple, and it, it has far, but it has far-reaching consequences and is a major key to the study of future events in Scripture. You won't understand future events if you don't understand that the church is going to be raptured and it's going to turn back to Israel again. Just read Romans 9, 10, and 11. So, it may sound surprising to many they see the, they, the, who see the rapture is only a doctrine taught in two major passages. And that's true. There are two major passages that teach the rapture. And so some would say, well, you know, okay, so it's there. And I think maybe the reason people tend to overlook it it's because it doesn't require us to do anything. If you, if you talk about being filled by the Holy Spirit, then there's a responsibility I have to be in the right position where the Holy Spirit can fill me. If we talk, we talk about walking by means of the Spirit and overcoming the flesh, it involves my doing something. I have to recognize this temptation, as, as this morning Scott was talking about, this temptation has come to me, and it's what I do with it that determines whether it's sin or not. So I have to do something. But when you come to this, the, the doctrine of the rapture, it's something we believe, but we don't have to do anything about it. So it, it sort of can slip by and you can kind of, well, I believe it and it's there and it's important, but it's just I don't pay as much attention to it as, as I could. 
But today my theme is, and this is what I want you to take home, that the rapture is the key to understanding the book of Revelation. In a manner of speaking, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is the missing piece that holds the puzzle together of the book of Revelation. Now, I know many people will say, and I, I already have said that, that the book of Revelation is regarded as the most difficult book in the New Testament to understand and to interpret. It is. It is. It's the most difficult, but does that mean it's impossible? Well, if it was impossible, why would God give it to us? Why would it be here if we couldn't do something with it? So, it is difficult, it is challenging, but if you start off by taking it literally, you're ahead of the game. But if you put into the puzzle, into the mix, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, the book becomes much, much, much easier. Because then you'll understand who the, who's involved in the events of Revelation 6 through 19, which is what we call the tribulation and the great tribulation. You won't have a problem understanding we're not there. And the key to it all is understanding is the rapture. Now, we say it's important. We say it's the... It's the glue, it's the key, because first of all, if you go to, to Rome, Revelation chapter 1, the rapture is inherent in the outline of the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, you have what, what stands out as being the outline for the book. And I, I like this in John's writings, in, in his gospel, and in 1 John, and in Revelation, he always, he always provides some type of an outline of what he's talking about. And so here... Jesus gives him the outline himself because he says in verse 19 of Revelation chapter 1, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, the things which you have seen. Well, what has John seen? Is he asking John to imagine stuff? No. If you look beginning at verse 12 of Revelation chapter 1, And I turned to see the voice of him that spoke with me. Now, in verse 11, he's found out somebody said, I'm Alpha and Omega. And so John turned around to see the voice of the one that spoke with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the son of, a son of man. There's no definite article there. One unto like a son of man. In other words, he saw something that looked like a typical man. But then, not entirely, because it says, clothed with a garment down to his foot and gird about the paps around the chest with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool. Now, you, see, you notice it says like. This is where Bible study is, is helpful. Like, it means similar to. It doesn't mean his head was wool and his hair was wool. It, says it was white like that. As white as snow and his eyes were like or as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice was as the sound of many waters. Now, I believe... This is not how John ever saw Jesus. If you're looking at our, at our outline, um, there's an error in, in the first line where it says, Revelation 1.16, it should be Revelation 1.17. I changed it in the copy, in the, in the, but if you want to change that, where it says, this is not how John had seen Jesus. Jesus G, John had never fallen at Christ's feet as though he were dead, and that's in verse 17. It says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, you notice it says, as or like. He didn't die. And so, here again, this is just one of those little things where people say, well, hey, John died at this point, and he had to be raised back up to life. No, he fell like he was dead. He just, he was out. He was out of it. He had to be lifted back up and, and uh, stopped upside the face, so to speak. Now, John, this is not the Jesus that John saw, because remember, if you remember the upper room, 
where, you, where it starts off, you have, when Jesus starts talking about who was going to betray him, John was leaning on his chest. This was the man who was leaning on his chest, so he certainly was not afraid of Jesus. And if you look back at John chapter 20, you can see, even in an unusual event, the disciples were not terrified by the appearance of John. Now, they might have been a little bit shocked at the suddenness of the appearance, but not at the person that appeared. If you look in verse 19 of John chapter 20, and we were here before a couple weeks ago, but this, this is good for review and this is good to, to see again, because what you see in Revelation 1 is definitely not how Jesus appears to his own today. And so it says in John chapter 20, verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now you notice it says he he stood there and appeared to them. And he, he said, Peace be to you. Now do you see any evidence of them being terrified or falling down? No, because he did not appear like you see him in Revelation. He appeared, he would have looked a lot like he did during his earthly ministry, minus a few marks of aging and so forth. He would have been in his glorified state, but he wouldn't have turned up his glory, and they would have seen him looking like he normally looked. And if they were, if they were stunned at anything, it would have been the fact that he, just, he was there, he appeared in the midst of them. It doesn't say he walked in the door. He just came in, he just appeared. He had that ability to do that. But that didn't apparently even frighten him. Now, the reason we're looking at that is because there must be a reason that you see this image of Jesus Christ. Now, when you put this in what is going to happen beginning at the sixth chapter and beginning to see that the wrath of God is starting to be poured out on the earth, now you're seeing what they're going to see because they most certainly will see Jesus Christ at his second coming. If you look back at Matthew chapter 24 for a moment, you can see that. And I think this is important to recognize because uh, we tend to think of Jesus Christ as the meek and lowly, and that's the way he's presented so often uh, by many preachers and teachers. And yeah, he was during his earthly ministry. But when you see this here, beginning at 29, verse 29 of Matthew 24, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. So there's going to be some rattling on the earth because stars don't fall. But if you're sitting on the earth and the earth is shaking, it's going to make the stars look like they're falling. They're going to be dancing. But it's because of the earth. And it says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. What does that great power look like? He's going to have glory and he's going to have power. What is that going to look like? Well, here's what it's going to look like. This is it. Because he's not coming. He's not coming peacefully. Because if you remember what we saw back in our scripture reading today in Psalm chapter 2, there's something that's stated very clearly here. And I think we overlook something. When we think about the rejection of Christ and we think about how the world looks at him today, there's something here that, uh, well, this goes back to a little bit to uh, an understanding of Hebrew. There's an interesting statement in here. In verse 2 it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. When it says set themselves, that's a form of the verb in the Hebrew that means they really did it. They did it. It puts intent in it. It emphasizes it. 
It's hard to translate in English, so set themselves isn't bad because it means they didn't just do it. They did it by intent. They did it with a reason. There was something that was there. And so this was written way back. I mean, this, this Psalm 2 was written a long time before Jesus was rejected by his people. This is prophetic. The kings of the earth, they were determined to get rid of him. They were absolutely set themselves to get rid of him. And by the way, I think you see that same attitude today. Because you know what Jesus said, and we didn't put it in your notes, but Jesus even said to his opponents that when you put me on the cross, you're going to know that I am. Did you realize that he said that to them? They would recognize when, he put, when they put him on the cross. Well, it's not in your notes, but maybe I should have put that in. Uh, John chapter 8. Uh, Jesus said this, and uh, so it only intensifies these people because it was bad enough they rejected him. But if they rejected, just imagine, if they rejected him knowing who he really was, how much worse is it if they knew that this was the I am come in flesh? How much worse is it to crucify somebody like that? It's unspeakable how, much, how bad that could be. But in John chapter 8, verse 28, Then Jesus said unto them, Now this, in this exchange in John chapter 8, if you follow down through this, he's talking to those who rejected him. He's, he's talking to those he's going to say in verse 44, You are of your father the devil. These are those who already rejected him. It says, Jesus said unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am. Now please notice he's italicized. Leave that out. This is one of the important statements in John's Gospel. When he says, I am, what does that mean? Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, I believe it is. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where you see the burning bush, and God speaks out of the bush and says, I, you tell the, When the people ask who I am, tell them that I am has sent you. This was a straightforward claim of deity. What does that mean? John 8, 28. When you put me on the cross, then you're going to know that I am. Now that sheds a whole different light on things. That shows you what Psalm 2 really meant. They knew what they were doing and they were determined to do it anyway. Now something else that's not in your notes and maybe I should have put it in there, and I apologize for doing this to you folks. But something else that's in, in your notes, one of the things that's so telling about the Jews and their, why did they want to get rid of him? Why did they hate him so much, even though he was the I Am? Well, in John chapter 11, after, after the resuscitation of Jesus, uh, they said something ridiculous. In verse 47 of John 11, this is not in there, but I, I should have put this in your notes to show you the contempt these people had. They knew who he was when they put him on the cross. They're gonna, now, they haven't done it in the 11th chapter, but they're going to know when they put him on the cross. They're going to recognize that he was I am. And they're still determined to do it. Now, I think they probably realized it be, even before that. But look what they say in verse 47 and verse 48. Then, uh, this is right after... Lazarus has been resuscitated, and some of them, it says, uh, verse 46, some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what were done, what, what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council. It's the word, it's the word we get Sanhedrin from, which was the high religious council, the highest governing body under Rome that Jews could have was the Sanhedrin. It covered religious affairs. 
And look what they said. Now, this is very telling. Please notice this. If we let him alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away, look it, both our place and nation. What's first? Our place. They didn't want Jesus because he was going to take away their swamp. If we talk about it today, the swamp in Washington, D.C., well, this was the swamp back here. Our place, these religious leaders, the Pharisees, they held big sway over the people. They had a very important place. They lived well. They were quite wealthy people, by the way. They got rich by being in the religion. So, you know, the televangelists today, they, they have got nothing on these people. These people were rich. And so their place was there. So why did they not want Jesus? They knew who he was. They had so much contempt for him that they still wanted to put him on the cross because he was going to upset the apple cart. They weren't going to have their place. And that's important. Our place and nation. Now, it wouldn't have been so, it would have been, it would have been a little better if they said our, na- our nation and our place. But they showed, their, they, they showed their heart here. They showed their real intent. It's our place and nation. Now, what does that say? Well, and you know, it's, it's not going to end there. And going back to our notes, these rulers and kings, if you look over at Revelation chapter 17, going back to Revelation, and I hope you added those handwritten notes in there that you wrote in John 8 and John 11, those things down, because they're really part, part and parcel of what we're seeing about how the world resolved or reacted to Jesus. And it shouldn't be any, it's, you know, it shouldn't be any great surprise you want to know one little thing that, that really gets my goat, and, and it maybe it shouldn't, but have you noticed that in all writings, now I understand why the Jews would be doing this, because they don't like Jesus, but if you, know, if you ever notice in all the scholarly writings now, they say C.E. and B.C.E., where they used to say B.C. and A.D., well, what, why did they take that away? B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno, Anno Dominus, whatever, Anno Dominum is the year of our Lord. They hate him so much that they'll do a little thing like change that just to get his name off of the picture. Now, how far do you have to go? If you don't see contempt in that, folks, I think you're missing something. It's not a coincidence that they want to take in God we trust off our money. Well, who are you going to put on there? And what are we going to trust if we don't trust in God? Not the, not, certainly not our government. Certainly not the... Uh, uh, I don't know. There's nobody that you can trust when it comes to that. But if you look at Revelation 17... It just, says, it just says this. They shall, well, uh, it talks about some of the kings and some of the government that will be going on in the tribulation. It says, verse 14, Then these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and, and they that are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Now, we could look into a lot more, and for the sake of time, you can look at that passage in Revelation, because that's a, that's a real Doozy of a passage. Well, let's go ahead and just read the verses, and you can see what it's over in Revelation chapter 19. If you look over there, you can see that these individuals, they're going to make war with him. Now, they see him coming. They see this terrifying image of this one whose eyes are burning like coals of fire. That's a picture of a stern and angry judge. They're going to see him coming. They're still going to try and fight against him. Does that make any sense? When they see him coming with that kind of power and glory... Uh, you wouldn't think they'd want to do it, but here we go. Revelation chapter 19. And, well, let's, let's go back to verse 11, I guess. 
Let's start there. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and him that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness doth he judge and make war. Please notice, not in wrath, in righteousness he judges, he, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Remember that back we saw back in Revela- Revelation 1, where his eyes were like the flame of fire? That's why we say this is what they're going to see. That image back there in Revelation 1, 12 through 16, that's what they're going to see, and you see evidence of it here, because the eyes are like a flame of fire. And he had his head... And on his head many crowns, and he had a name written, which no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, you could write there the Word of God. You can write see John 1.1, because the, the name of the second person of the Godhead that we call Jesus Christ, or the Son of God, his name in eternity past, before the decree was made, he was known as the Word. He's the Word of God. That's his name. That's his original name. Jesus was something at his birth. He was in Psalm 2. It says, Thou, my son, this day I have appointed thee. There was a time in the decree when the father said to the son, I've appointed you to this duty. I'm giving you this office. And the son willingly accepted it. So he became the son. But he was always known as the word. So there's no doubt here. This is his name. There's no question who this is. This is the eternal second person of the Godhead coming. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen and clean and white. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, which with it he shall smite the nations, and he shall rule over them with a rod of iron. And he treads the, the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And so you can read on from down in there, and you can see that there's going to be a lot of killing that goes on. A lot of killing that goes on. They're still going to come out and fight this one. Now, how does the rapture fit into all this? Well, we're going to see it more, more clearly because of how it affects the seven churches. Because he said, and back in Revelation 1, he said, remember, he wrote the things which you've seen. That's the image. He's seeing a prophetic image that you see from the 19th chapter. That's when the Son of Man comes and he's going to put down all authority at the second advent. He's going to wipe everything out. Now, if you understand that, then you understand the destruction of Babylon it talks about in the book of Revelation, and you know where to place it. You know where to place it. You place it at the second advent, and that's going to help because we already know we're not going to be here. We're going to be on the other side. We're going to be coming with him. And now there's a lot of people that will look at those things, and and if they don't understand this, they're going to be afraid. They're going to be confused. You don't have to be. Because the rapture is the key to this understanding. And, the, and really the proof comes when you see the seven churches. He said, the things which are. So John says, the things which you've seen. He saw an image of Christ is coming. The things which are, the seven churches. And now you're going to see why the rapture is so inherent in this. Because in these seven churches, there's something unique. One of these churches is specifically told it will not go into the tribulation. Did you know that? Well, look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. This is the church of Philadelphia. This is one of the churches of which there is nothing negative said. There's no correction given to them. They're only counseled to hang on to what they have. They're told in verse 8, I know your, I know your works. I set before you an open door. No one can open it. You have a little strength, and you've kept my word. That's the closest you come to anything negative. You've got a little bit of strength, but you've kept my word. So this is all positive. But then he says, verse 10, Because you've kept the word of my patience, 
I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. The hour of temptation, what does that refer to? That comes on all the earth? Well, now, if we're careful, we're going to stay in the book of Revelation. We're not going to say, well, let's see, that hour of temptation, it could be something back here in Ezekiel. It could be something, no. That's what people that are, are these Reformed theologians we talked about, they'll do things like that. Now, let's stay in the book of Revelation. What would the hour of temptation coming on the whole earth be? Well, that's pretty easy, isn't it? It'd be the Great Tribulation, wouldn't it? So, in other words, this church is told in so many words, you're not going to go into the Tribulation. Now, on top of page two of my notes, if you're following along, if one church is promised that it will not go into the Tribulation, then it also means that there are churches that will go into the Tribulation, into the hour of temptation. Now, it's pretty reasonable if there's going to be one church that's told they're not going to, then that leaves the door open. What about the other churches? Well, now, we're not going to go into it at the moment, but in Revelation 2, the church of Ephesus was a church that went out of existence a long time ago. And we know that from, from history and from what Jesus said about them. But there's six other churches here. So one of them has told us not going to go. Well, that also tells me that there's going to be churches right up until the end. So that, puts, that gives us a perspective of where we are today. We're in the dispensation of grace, and it's going to go right on until the tribulation because one church has promised it won't go there. So that tells you that what follows is not going to involve the church. But there is a church that is going in. Now, I think, let's see, the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2. Now, we do know for sure there's one church, so this church must be in existence. So, in other words, these churches that you see are not only literal churches, but they're also prophetic. They're also prophetic of what a part of the professing church, of what we call Christendom. And sometimes, you know, Christendom is spelled with D-O-M, and different ones have suggested that it be spelled with Christen D-U-M-B. Now, I've always thought that was funny, and I kind of half subscribe to it, because a lot of what passes off as Christendom is just plain dumb. So now... In, in Revelation chapter 2, let's see, uh, verse 22, look what it says. Behold, I will cast, and this is talking about the church of, and there, there's, a, there's somebody in there at this time, they, talk, they call her the woman Jezebel. And it says, I gave her space to repent, and she wouldn't do it. Verse 22, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her, into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Now, great tribulation. I know there's not a definite article there, but you find that term great tribulation used with an article in the seventh chapter, and there's no doubt what it's talking about. So whatever this church stands for, whatever it is, it's in existence today, and it is going to go in the great tribulation. So now you know you have, it's the, the rapture now becomes the key because we know that these churches are going to exist because one's not going to go. If it's not going to go into the... It wouldn't make any sense if you talk about the church of Ephesus not going into the, into the Great Tribulation. That church ceased to exist 1,700 years ago or more. But if it's a church that's the church of Philadelphia, which characterizes a part of Christendom, of which we are part of, then that tells you that the church is going to be here right up until that point. But it's not going to go in. Now, isn't that the key? Isn't that a key to understanding Revelation? You take us out of the picture and you've got an important key. This does not concern us. Revelation 6 through 19 is not what's going to happen to us. It's what's going to happen to the world.
and to Israel as they begin to get straightened out with God. And it's, it's such an important key. So we have down here number four in our notes on page two. The rapture, therefore, is the key to understanding the seven, why the seven, or when the seven churches exist. Because Thyatira will go into the, into the tribulation, because the church of Philadelphia will not. Now, without those distinctions, we would not know that how long these seven churches existed. We wouldn't know where this place. But this gives you a scope of history. Now you understand that you've gone in the third chapter, you've gone right up to the tribulation, and now part of us is taken out. And that's a key. Because now you know, now you know something important about the book of Revelation that will give you a lot of help. It has nothing to do with us. Events beginning in chapter 4 really doesn't have anything to do with us. But chapter 6, when things really start to heat up, it has nothing to do with us. Now that in itself, if we stop there today, you folks would get benefit of having me be done quicker and you wouldn't have to listen to me. But uh, you would get the, I think you could see very clearly that there's no doubt that the rapture is a key. If you keep it literal, all we have to do is take the word of God literally. We don't have to make a thing up. Not one single thing. So, the things which shall be hereafter. That's the third part of that in the introduction. Now, here is, here's a, this is absolutely, if the, second, if the fact that we have one church going into tribulation, one not, is, is not evidence enough, then when you come to the fourth chapter, it says, the things which shall be hereafter. It's the same identical two words that you find back in Revelation 1.19. The things which shall be hereafter, and in Revelation 4.1, it starts, it starts out by saying, As I looked, there was a door open in heaven, and the voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet. Now, it says, as it were of a trumpet. So it's going to be an interesting sounding voice talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. Now, if you want to be very literal, it's after these things. It's two Greek words. I didn't put them in here. But it's after these things, identical two words. I'll show you what's going to happen after these things. Okay, so in 4.1 it says after these things. Well, after what things? Now, we don't have any right to pull this out of context and say, well, after, well, I think it's this event back here in, in, in Deuteronomy or this event in Jeremiah. They'll, they'll do those kind of things. But let's, let's, be, let's be good students of the book. After these things, let's stay right in the book. What, are the, what, what things immediately precede this? Well, you know what immediately precedes this? It's the church of Laodicea, which tells me something very interesting. If that's the last church, and if they're put in order deliberately by their time in which they're prominent, the prominent face of the church right before the rapture is the church of Laodicea. Now, if you read down through it, you're going to come away with the conclusion that that was a church that was just loaded with unsaved people, including the pastor. Well, look at what it says in verse 18 of, of of uh, Revelation 3. And th this is just, this is just, uh, well, verse 17. Because you say, now he's talking, you notice it's, because thou sayest. Now here the King James, I, I do like the King James, these and thou's in this point. Because it's a second person singular. Because what, whom Jesus is speaking to, is he's speaking to the angel or the messenger which we would believe is the pastor, because there's not an angel in the pulpit. I know Pastor Kevin is a good speaker, and I know he's a great guy, and I think the world of him, but I don't think he's an angel yet. I don't think he's quite that caliber. I think he's a little bit different than that, and I don't think he'd want to be an angel either, by the way. 
So the, it's a messenger. He's speaking to the messenger. Now he says to him, this is singular, you'll notice. It says, because you say, verse 17, you singular say, I am rich, I am increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, is that a description of a born-again believer? Not hardly. Not hardly. We're not naked. We have the righteousness of Christ. We're clothed over and we're pictured in in the book of Revelation. You're going to see with, with garments, with white garments. This guy's naked. He doesn't have anything that he needs. He's blind to Scripture. He's poor. He isn't blessed with all spiritual blessings. He's poor. What is he? You have an unsaved pastor of an unsaved church, but look at what he's saying. I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Now, does that kind of make you wonder about somebody on the television radio saying he needed to raise several million dollars to get a Learjet so he could spread, go around the world and spread the gospel? <laughs> does that make sense? Do you have to have a Learjet to spread the gospel? Boy. You could, buy, you could buy me a brand new Toyota Corolla and I would be, the guy would do that and he'd save a whole lot of money, quite a bit of money, in fact. No, you don't need to. And so this is prosperity theology. Do you see it, folks? Rich, increased with goods. I have needed nothing. I've got everything. I've got the good life. And then I get up and say, well, I want you to have it too. You can have this Rolex on my wrist. This isn't a Rolex. You can have this Rolex. You could probably all afford this one, but you could have my Rolex if I had one. No, that's, that's not what the message is supposed to be. And so you can see this is the final state. And so when you look at this, you understand, bingo. There's no doubt that things after these things, it's the church. So if we take it literally, we understand something. It's the key to understanding that the events that follow will will be the beginning of the tribulation. And we're not going to be here at all when they begin. We're not even going to see the man of lawlessness. You know, I've often wondered if there's some way we can know about who the man of lawlessness, the beast that's going to solve problems. I wonder who he is. You kind of look at different ones out there and you say, well, there are these world leaders out there. I wonder which one it could be. I'd kind of like to know who it is. But you know, I don't want to be here to find out. (laughs) And the only way I can see for sure you're going to find out is to stay here. And I don't want to stay here because I know what's going to happen. And, And so do you. So. There's something else in Revelation that the rapture will open the door to. And that's the identity of the 24 elders. Now, in Revelation chapter 4, there's a verse that's there, and they're mentioned a few times. And there's a lot of speculation on who these 24 elders are. But you know, the rapture of the church answers that. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. And around the throne were four and twenty seats. Now... It says around the throne were four and twenty seats. That word for throne and seats is the same word. We, it's, it's the word we get thrown from. It, the Greek word for it is thronos. All you got to do is change two letters into English and make it throne, and you've got the English word throne. So it's around the throne were four and twenty thrones. And upon those seats I saw four and twenty elders clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, This is very interesting because the rapture is the key, this is point number two, to understanding, identifying who those 24 elders are. Now, you see thrones that are there. Now, we just mentioned that that that's the same word. And you'll see that the throne of God is described in color. There's a rainbow around the throne and sight like an emerald. So there's description of that throne, which is God's throne. But what is interesting to me is that the, the thrones that these 24 elders are on 
they're not described because, well, they're, they're not the big cheese. It's interesting. It kind of shows you something that if you pay attention to it. It's just fun to look at those details. So, now, a throne, remember what a throne is. A throne, when we talk about a throne, it could be symbolic of rule. Now, for example, you might hear it said, uh, and, and, and I've heard this over the years, it says, the White House said today. Now, you know, I've never seen that building talk. If that building started to talk, it would probably make more sense than the guy that's in there now, I think. But if that building started to talk, that would be big news, wouldn't it? The building doesn't talk. So that building represents the leadership that's in there. So, and that's what a throne means. So what, it, what this is telling me is that the throne of God is the place where his rule originates from. The throne of the Almighty. And there are 24 thrones around us. So those are seats of authority that have some part in the governance of God. Now, the rapture is the key to understanding who they are. Because many, many Bible teachers will, will say that they believe, and this, we're looking at our notes down here, many Bible teachers believe that the 24 elders represent the church, but it's difficult to, to prove without accounting for the rapture. Because the rapture opens the door to it. Because after these things, well, the church is gone. Revelation 3.10, the church of, La- church of Philadelphia is not going into the tribulation. And the rapture comes and, and there's nobody there. It's after these things. So then what's, what evidence do you need beyond that? Who the 24 hours would be? It's right there. But now it goes beyond that. Because the appearance of the 24 elders is a description of what a church saint would look like. Now, at the bottom of page 2 and under page 3, I have put in here some, you'll see some notes where you see G3022 and G2440. If you use eSword, I put that in for the benefit of anybody that uses eSword. If you want to look up and see where these words are used, you can do it without having any knowledge of Greek at all because it's set up that way. And if you have any doubts about it or have any interest in it, Come talk to me afterwards, and I'll be glad to tell you about eSword because it's a wonderful tool. And besides that, it has one advantage. It's free. I love free. Anything that's free, I'm willing to, I'm willing to look at, especially if it's something like this. And this turns out to be a free tool that actually does most of the work of a tool that, I, that would have cost me $350 if I'd gotten it. This does almost the same work as a $350 tool, and it's free. So if you don't have these sword, you ought to think about it. But so now you'll notice in Revelation 4, 4, what it says about these, these 24 elders. It says, they were clothed in white raiment and they had on their heads crowns of gold. So only Christians are pictured that way. Because if you look back in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, you'll see that it's, that's what the, the case is. Going back just a page. He that overcometh shall, shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his book out of, the name, out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. The same will be clothed in white raiment. That's why it's so important when this fellow back over here in verse 17 is, is naked. He doesn't have the righteousness. He's not one of the people that's going to be there. He's not. Because you look at verse 18, he says, I, he says, I counsel you to buy of me Gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and white raiment, that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you might see. So you can see, that's something that the believer has, but the church of Laodicea, don't be surprised, folks, a lot of those guys that you hear on the media, 
on the TV and the radio that are looking for money and talking prosperity theology, this is what they are. This is what they are. I'm not saying the scripture says it. Anybody's going to say, talk about all this wealth and everything they have, I'm going to say, well, you sound, you sound like this guy back here. And that means that you must be saying you're an unsaved person. Well, not in so many words. You don't know you're saying it, but you really are. Now, another key to understanding this is the fact that they have on their heads, in Revelation 4, verse 4, it says they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, really, it's, it's really victor's wreaths, which was something different. But these are going to be of gold, which means they're not going to... If you had a, a, a wreath made out of laurel leaves or something like that, as they used to do, after, what, a couple of days, it'd dry out and wouldn't be any good. So you won an Olympic game, and you couldn't go home and brag if you went very far, because by the time you got home, it'd be all dried and withered, and you'd hold this piece of mangy stuff up and say, see this piece of mangy stuff? It tells you that I was first place. And look at it and say, well, it tells me that you picked up garbage on the way. Well, these are, these are crowns of gold. Now, you'll notice once again... I put on here, you, I gave you the words, uh, the, the Strong's reference, if you use these swords, so you can see these things. But now, they have on their head crowns of gold. Now, in Scripture, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, only Christians can earn these kind of crowns. And that's why it's important. I printed these verses out so you can see it. So if you look at your page, there are five crowns that a believer can win, maximum. Some, one of them, I don't think any of us would really want to win, the last one on there. But the first one, it says, for 1 Thessalonians 2.19, it says, For what is our hope or joy or our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Well, that's what we call the soul winner's crown. If you've led somebody to Christ, you know, at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, this is a reward that you'll be given. Now, we will find out if we read later, well, this is not going to be something you keep and walk around bragging, I have two or three of them and you only have one. This is going to be something you throw back at the feet of the Lord because he's the one that made it possible. But nonetheless, it's a reward. So if these elders have this crown, then it tells you who they are. They have to be part of the church. Now look at Second Timothy 4.8. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me that day, and not to me only, but, to, but unto all them that love his appearing. Now I put it in there, Titus 2.12 and 13 because... How do you show you love his appearing? Well, you can do it, and it's, not, and it's here again. Let's look at Titus chapter 2. It's not uh, something that I'm going to make up. I don't need to make it up. I always like it when pastor said that. He came out with that expression, I'm not making any of this up. It struck, into me, that, it struck me that that was exactly what we need to say to people outside our group if they question us. Just say, I'm not making this up. Here it is. Right here. Just read it. So here in Titus chapter 2, it says, well, well, let's read verse 11, 11, 12, and 13. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of that great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What is verse 13 talking about? Looking for, really, that's a word that means expecting to welcome. It's, it's, it's a word like you have a receiving line at church after a wedding. They aren't, they aren't taking anything. They're welcoming people. It's that word. You're what we're expecting to welcome the, the glorious appearance of the great God and our Savior. That's the rapture. So how do I live like, um, how do I live as though I love his coming? Well, I live in the light of it. I let that be something that I'm expecting to welcome. 
And if I'm expecting to welcome it, isn't that going to change how I live? Now, I don't have to do anything. The interesting thing about the rapture, what makes it so hard, as I said right at the very outset, is it doesn't call, call upon me to do anything. Just believe in it. That's what makes it hard for us, because when we get right down to honest facts, how, how, how easy is it, is it to do something when you have to contribute part of it or, or some of it? Even if it's just 10%, isn't it more satisfying to know that you've done something if you had your hand in it? In all honesty, it is. But that's not the case with the rapture. We don't contribute one thing. We don't even know when it's going to come. It's just going to come and bam, we're gone. So it, it becomes very easy for us to not see this. But we can live in the light of it, knowing that it's going to come at any time, knowing we're not even going to see it. It's going to happen and we're going to be gone. And when we're living that way, we're loving His coming. You mean, you mean if someone likes to get a reward at the judgment seat of Christ? Well... If Scripture means anything, that's what it says here. Now, the next one is really a good one. This one is something. This was something what Scott was getting into this morning. James 1.12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he will receive the crown. There it is, the crown of life, which the Lord has promised them to them that love him. The man that endures temptation. Do you realize if you overcome a temptation? Now, it doesn't say how many. So I'm going to guess that it's just one temptation. You might say, well, pastor, is it just one temptation to give you this crown? But if you stop and think about it, and you look at temptation, particularly you look at the works of the flesh, back in, all the way back in, uh, in uh, the book of Galatians, and you see those things and ask yourself, how many times do I myself overcome those things when they pop up? There might, there's, there's got to be at least one or two in there that, you're, you know, that you and I are suspect to. We all have our own weak spot. We all have our own, as it were, pet sins. I remember the joke about pet sins. They asked me afterward about that. There's a funny joke about pet sins. But we all have it. So you think about how many, even us that know, do we, how many times do we over, actually overcome us? If you've got a problem with temper, think about the times you've lost your temper. You know? How many times is it that you stop saying, wait a minute. I don't have to do this. That's what, I was, that's what I was before. Now I'm in Christ. I have his righteousness. I'm seen there. I don't have to do this. This is what I have in Christ. I'm dead to this. You know, how many times have you done that? Mm, I, I can honestly say I've done it a couple times. But I can also honestly say I've done a whole bunch more the other time where, where the hammer flew across the room after I hit my thumb. You know, my favorite example. You hit your thumb with a hammer and you stop and say, the logical thing to do is for me to get mad and throw this hammer and cuss. That's not how it works. You just pick the hammer up and you throw it. And you... Well, how many times do we do? So perhaps when you look at this, this James 1.12, the person that overcomes, I think if we've overcome a single temptation, now I might be wrong, but this is, this is my opinion at this point, I think this crown is going to be offered to those who've overcome a single temptation because it just doesn't happen. Think about all the Christians you know that you've run across in your life. And how many of them struggle with things and they've got books on how to overcome your temper? I had a book years ago that by James Naramore, and there was a whole group back then of how to deal with your temper. And you know what? It's something an unsafe person would tell you. Essentially, it told me to count to 10. Well, it might, might, have, been, it might, it might have been really spiritual to say count to 12 because that's, a, that's the number of the disciples, 12 disciples. So it must be more important if you say 12. It's about all it amounted to is it was telling me to do what I say, that's not going to solve your problem. And if that's what I live by, it's no wonder that you see so much of Christendom, but they don't, they don't know how to overcome temptation. So this crown, 
may not be given out as much as you think, oh, everybody should win this comp. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. How about this next one? Now, this is one that goes to the shepherd, to the pastor. So only a pastor can get this one. First Peter 5, 4, it says, When the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory, which shall not pass away. So pastors can get this. But they have to fulfill the qualifications of not being there for greed or avarice, not taking the oversight because they feel like they have to, not lording it over the people. Oh, boy, there's a lot of stories of pastor tyrants out there where pastors tell the church what to do and order them around. It it happens. It happens. There's been many stories about that. And the last one is a crown that I don't think any of us would really volunteer for right away. I'll settle for maybe winning two or three crowns if I can have that, but I don't want this one. Revelation 2.10, Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried and have tribulation for ten days. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, the martyr's crown. And there's going to be a lot of people from the early church. And in the world we live in today, there are probably people today that are going to win this because there are places in this world where the name of Christ, Islam will take you. They'll take you right out. And they would do it in this country, I think, if they had half the chance. So there will be some that get this one. So, and our time is running away with us. But the final key lies in, in the word of throne itself. When we look at these 24 elders, because we say that their, their thrones are all around the main throne. They're going, to have a pro, they're going to have some part in the program of God. If you look at the fifth chapter, and beginning at verse 8, you find that these elders are going to be involved in the ruling and reigning. And that's something that's only promised to the church. It says, And when he had taken the book, and the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the, the Lamb, each one of them having harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof. That's back in chapter 5. For you were slain and has redeemed us to God, by your blood out of every kindred, tongue, and nation, and has made us, made unto us therefore our kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. Now, there's only one group of individuals that that's ever promised to. Back in Revelation chapter 2, and now I think I, mis- I, think I gave you a, a bad reference there. Yeah, it should be, Reve- uh, and if you're looking at the notes in page 3, the only group prom- ever promises in Scripture is the church, and that should be Revelation 2.26, not, 20, not uh, 24. So it's Revelation 2.26 and 27. I changed that on the copy. I put it in the file of church, in, in, a, in the file of my notes, but I, obviously I had already printed these up. So if you look back at Revelation 2.26 and 27, now remember who the overcomer was. And re- you look at Je- Revelation 2.26, the overcomer is identified in 1 John 5 as being those who are believers. In other words, you're all an overcomer if you believe in the gospel. If you become saved, you are an overcomer. And so what does he say here? And he that overcomes, that's the Christian, and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As a potter, they shall be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my father. Do you mean we're actually going to be involved in rule? That's what it says. So when you put these pieces together, who are these individuals? But you see, you wouldn't be able to say that definitively if you didn't understand 
the rapture. It's such a key to this book of Revelation. When you put it into there and you plug it in, everything fits together. Now, one more thing, and we're going we're to have to uh, allow you to read the rest of the notes, but I want to just say something very quickly uh, about uh, the, the next section on, on uh, identifying the martyrs is, is, worth, is worth your time to read. Uh, I'd love to have covered it, but I'm not going to keep you here till 12.30 or 1 o'clock or anything of the sort. <laughs> but just to, just to mention about this, what is the significance of having the 24 elders? Now, we've been talking about that. But we haven't said anything about it. What's the point in having 24? Is there something? Well, I believe that the number 24 was chosen because the, the, there were 12 apostles or disciples that were to Israel in the gospel. And in the early church, you can find there were 12 apostles to the church. Now, I know there's some overplay. I know Peter was an apostle to Israel, and he was also apostle to the church. I know, but there's still numerically, there were 12 of each. Now, why is that important? I believe it represents each one, because the church to this day has not erased the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian distinction. Do you realize that? Even today, you have some Jews that call themselves Jewish or Messianic Christians, as though they're different from the rest of us. Is that really fair and true to do? Well, we're going to have to read this. I want you to read Galatians chapter 3. Paul has the, has the final say on this. Should we have Messianic Christians today? Should we be joining in with them and celebrating Jewish feasts and so forth? Let Scripture tell you the answer to that one. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 26, for you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now he says, for as many as have you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither what? Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed according to promise. Is there a Jew and Gentile distinction any longer? No, there is not. Should there be a Jewish Christian church, a Jewish believers, a Messianic church? No, there should not. That's wrong. It says so right here. And that's why I believe, when you look at that, I believe, honestly, that is the reason that you see 24. Now, I know the last reason I put on this top of page 4, we're going to have to stop here. I'll have to let you read point C and beyond. Uh, I think it's worth your time, and I think it's, it's material that will be very helpful. But I think another reason John saw 24 was if he had seen millions and millions of people up there, he couldn't have taken in the number. He couldn't have followed them. If you see 24, it's, it's a manageable size. It's a big group. 24 would be a big group of people to watch. So it gives the impression there's a lot of people here without making it so big you couldn't see it. But also that 24, I really think that that's the show at the rapture will all finally be one. And back in John 10, and I put it in your footnotes, in John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus talked about other sheep that weren't of this fold. He was talking about Jews. Other sheep that weren't of the fold of Israel. He said, I'll bring them, and they'll be together, and there'll be one fold and one shepherd. It will finally happen at the rapture. There won't be any more of this distinction. Not that I have anything against those who want to claim their Jewish heritage. That's between them and the Lord. But I can say on the authority of Scripture... That's wrong. But we're finally going to be one. We're going to be one. Well, as we close this morning, and we'll allow you to read the rest of the uh, notes on page four, we're not, going to, we're not going to go into those. I don't want to keep it that long. 
But our conclusion on page 5, and I think it's worth reading, so I'm going to read it to you. What we have seen today is a very simple yet very profound truth. Hopefully every one of us here today understands and believes in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. While we've not gone to the two major passages that clearly teach this, we instead went to, to the book that most believers and even Bible teachers consider as the hardest book in the Bible to understand. Today, we've used the rapture to explain that it is the key, or to show that it's the key to understanding the book of Revelation. Now, of course, that doesn't explain every verse and every chapter or every event, and that was never our intent to do that. But rather, it does something more important for us. By taking, the, by taking a truth, a rapture, that is, one can easily overlook, since it's only presented in two passages, we can see that no born-again Christian ever needs to fear anything that's recorded in Revelation 6-19. through 19. Now, if you've ever met believers, and I've met some, that are afraid of those events because they're really not sure, you have an opportunity to show them that the rapture is the key to understanding it, that there's no reason for them to be afraid because they're not going to be here. And just maybe what we've preached today will serve as a reminder that the things we understand and believe from the Bible can and should affect how we live. Just remember Titus 2, as we saw. The rapture can affect how we live. It can. Because if I'm expecting to welcome that, do you think I'm going to be doing some of the things I shouldn't be doing? Maybe not. Maybe not. That'll cover what Scott was talking about this morning when there are things that the Lord impresses on you you shouldn't be doing. And maybe, just maybe, we'll be living the kind of life we should.